From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, coming to you via Zoom. We've got three of the four hosts in this week. Adi Weiner's here, Eric Bradlow's here, Cade Massey hosting Shane Jensen is a way doing Shane Jensen things, but he will be back. Some combination of us are here every week to talk sports analytics. Since COVID hit, we've been coming at you with via zoom and we've been covering COVID in the first quarter, still interested fellas, always interested in what has caught your eye around the world in COVID. It, we're not out of the wor- woods yet. We've got a flattening of cases that decline has stopped. Britain in particular has been going up with this new variant. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And anything else you got? What are you interested in around coronavirus? All right, so why don't we start talking about what they now call the Delta variant. Um, There's been a nomenclature shift from the country. There was the British variant, there was the India variant, and there may may have been others, I'm not even remembering. But now they're giving them alpha, beta, uh, gamma, delta, I suppose. So Delta is um, what we were calling the India variant. What they seem to know about it, and although I'm generally a little suspicious of what is claimed to be known is that it's far more um, contagious and also likely to be more severe. Right. That doesn't sound good. And I guess what you pointed out, Cade, uh, I just read that in David Leonard's uh, kind of overview of it on the New York Times website was that it seems to be rising in in um, England and also in the the U.S. We're sort of flattening. Um, Right. Uh, I guess that I don't know how what that means. There's been a lot of you know bumpiness in in these in these data historically. Um, at, the, at least it seems to be not affecting vaccinated people. That doesn't seem to have right. any impact on vaccinated people, which is fantastic. Just to reiterate what we talked about last time, they all these viruses have the same uh, protein spike protein backbone, which is what the vir- the vaccines are are are, are kind of primary targets for. Um, so it's good that they continue to work. Um, and therefore, death rates aren't rising. On the other hand, um, there's a lot of people still getting sick. So um, I don't know what else to add to it. Eric? Well, let me let me add let's, a let's, talk. Let's because the numbers, we're actually in three digits now in the states in new cases daily. I mean, we're down below 1,000 new cases daily, which is remarkable. Um, and my main my main question about the Delta variant is what what do we think? And I don't I haven't looked at a forecast model for a while, but We've got enough pockets of the United States where vaccination rates are pretty low that if the Delta variant gets a gets a foothold, I would think we would see a real increase in the number of cases, yeah, and especially because things are so open now and behavior is back to being normal now. Sorry, Eric. No, no, no. I, I was just going to build on what you said. So I heard an interesting interview today. Uh, I think it was on CNN with uh, Andy Slavitt, who was the former head of the Biden task force on the coronavirus. Um, and he, that's what he said. He, he gave a very interesting one-liner, which I think a lot of people should remember. Um, if you're vaccinated, he basically was talking about what we call homophily. If you're vaccinated, probably almost everybody you know is vaccinated. And if you're not <laughs> vaccinated, probably everybody you know is not. And so his comment about the, the Delta variant, which is what Adi was saying, is it's much more con- – It's there's a triple header, Adi. It's, listen to this. It's not, it is more contagious, which you talked about. It – is more severe if you get it. But here's the, the real knock, given what Cade said about behavior. You need less exposure to catch it. 
And so that's the one we don't talk about. Well, you're fine outside. Well, maybe with the Delta variant, you're not quite as fine. Or you need this much time of exposure. Well, actually, with the Delta variant, it's less. And so he talked about that as kind of the big three. You don't need as much exposure to get it. It's more easily transmissible. And it's more severe. So his comment was, with 30% of the U.S. essentially still unvaccinated, he said, you probably will not see the mass spread like we saw in that massive spike around January, but you'll see that in localized areas. And that's his major concern. And then he thinks, you know, it's a weighted average mathematics audit. This is what we study. The weighted average suggests we're not going to go up to the numbers we had before, but it would not surprise me if we actually saw an increase re- in the next month or two in mm-hmm. the number of cases and potentially even in deaths. It would mm-hmm. not surprise me. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I would be surprised to see substantial increases in deaths because even in those un- substantially unvaccinated population, the elderly have not been resistant. That's but, one of look, the. I'm, I'm referring to in comparison to today, yeah. where that number is already a low number. I'm not saying in comparison to where uh, to, we to, were. To, to yesterday. No, 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 no. But I do like your homophily observation. Speaking of which, I came back from San Francisco, where I. Oh, spent- oh, 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 oh. Yeah. you guys are throwing around this five dollar word. I think you need to define it. Well, homophily, you know, it's the, 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 the way they people say it in English is birds of a feather flock together. So mm-hmm. when you look at social networks, um, people that are similar have similar tastes, similar products, buy similar products, do similar things and tend to be connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you sit here and, you know, you're a Philadelphian and you're a professor at the Wharton School and you say, well, I got vaccinated. Everybody's vaccinated. No, I don't know anybody who's not vaccinated. As a matter of fact, you probably don't. You might not. But if you go to a person that's unvaccinated. Yes, remember, I went to I went to a wedding in West Texas last week. I, All right. Well, you know lots of people then or you <laughs> met lots of people that were unvaccinated. But I think your point, Cade, which is the important one, is given that I mean, it just happened today. California says we're 100 percent open again and everything. New York's going that way. Given that behavior is going back to the past, you could make an easy argument. This is a very dangerous time for non-vaccinated people, given the Delta variant. It, yeah. it, it just is. But as Adi said, the other weighted part of the mathematics we have to look at is it's not going to be the 70-year-olds and the 80-year-olds and the 90-year-olds getting it because 80, over 86% of people 65 and above have been, doubly, have been vaccinated at least once. And right. It, so yeah. that's going to tamper down the death rate, as Adi po- pointed out very appropriately. So let me just point to extend the homophily conversation. I was in it was in Marin, which is exactly the opposite end of the country compared to West Texas. Hold on. Marin County, <laughs> California. There, there, there are some differences, but hold on. I got to understand you were in Israel like 15 minutes ago and now you're in Marin County. You're making up for lost time. You're like, I am not- making up for lost time. Uh, you know what? I, w- I went to Israel to visit my daughter who uh, moved there. And then uh, I went to visit uh, uh, to go to attend a bat mitzvah of a friend of mine who of course had had to have postpone it it had it was supposed to have been uh, over a year ago and uh, i i'm i'm definitely making up for lost time very quick trip in and out in under 48 hours but it was remarkable was marin county actually i think has the highest vaccination percentage in the country over 90% of adults all adults not just um over 65 are right. vaccinated it's just crazy and they they one the other thing that was fascinating is very very few people even knew anyone who had covid that is how had, had uh, ever had it. 
had ever had it. That's how huh. kind of locked down they wow. were from the very beginning, and had very low rates up in Marin. Um, it was this is a, this is a, an economy that shifted online almost effortlessly. Um, almost nobody who might work in the stores in, in Marin actually live in Marin because no one can afford it. Um, and so it, is, it was a remarkable place to visit um, because this is just they were almost untouched, yet they were extraordinarily cautious. So they, they still had full enforcement of masks. I saw people in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco riding their bicycles, um, walking fully masked in a, in a way that I hadn't seen in, in, our, in this neck of the woods for some time. Now, I want to go back to what Adi said earlier. And you know, I don't want to say I stand corrected in my prediction that death rates may go up, but maybe I should stand corrected because let me say the following. Adi, let's take – you probably remember the numbers that you've said on this show many, many times. Let's take an 80-year-old – with COVID and a 50 year old with COVID or 40 year old with COVID. Is it somewhere in the ratio of six to one, eight to one, 10 to one, the death rate of the 80 year old compared to the 40 year old? It's somewhere at least at least 10. I think it's more like 20. Okay. So what, what you've pointed out, Adi, is this thing isn't 50 times more contagious and 50 times higher death rate. It might be double, but the people that are going to get it are one twentieth the death rate than we saw before. That's so right. There's these counterbalancing waiting forces that are going up. Unvaccinated people should be concerned, but a 40-year-old unvaccinated person or a 30-year-old or a 20-year-old their death rates, their base rates. You guys are Mr. Base Rates. Everything we talk about, we talk about base rates. Their death base, base rates are so low that while they may get it, there may not be this surge in deaths. We may see a surge in cases, but possibly not deaths. And let me also just one last thing to point out. I'm not convinced we're going to see a surge in reported cases because I think the number of people getting tested is going down dramatically. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe I especially that's another the, challenge. Maybe especially in those communities where vaccination rates are low. Exactly. Less By the way, I, I, may, I misspoke earlier. I talked about being in triple digits down to just triple digits in cases. I meant deaths. We're, we're at like yeah. this, the current seven-day average on deaths is under 500 right now, which is unbelievably, wonderfully low. The cases are still in the... 10,000, 12,000, 13,000. Okay, yeah. But still, I mean, that's a lo- we still have a long way to go. I mean, uh, population adjusted, that's still about 10 times higher than what Israel was seeing a month and a half ago in terms of deaths. So we still have... And it's still three to five times higher, as you know, we always try to norm it to the flu, which is not a bad thing to norm it against. If that were the daily death rate every day for the next 10 years, three to five times more people would die of COVID than die of the flu in an average year. Right. So it still has I think it still has a long way to go down, which is why I'm not expecting it to go up before it continues to go down. But the, the other, um, you know, uh, so we, uh, for, uh, the other observation real, real quickly on that, because this is a point you made last week. I think that's a really good one is that the time to death is kind of protracted here. And so the deaths you're seeing now are cases that are really kind of working their way through the system still. The deaths toll is going to be somewhat slow to react to recent developments. Right. I mean, because one of the topics I do want to get on before we leave COVID is treatment. Um, and we have treatment, particularly, I mean, to delay, even if not completely uh, recover, uh, people who do get sick. It's, we're not India. We do have the ability to, to, uh, to take care of people. We do have a, set, a collection of drugs that do seem to have medicinal benefits. But there's one, I want, one thing I wanted to add to the, to the homophily, not necessarily the homophily, but um, the idea that there are certain populations of 40-year-olds and under, maybe 50-year-olds and under, that are far more likely to be 
to have a, a bad um, case of COVID, potentially a fatal one, than others. It turns out that, I mean, a certain types of illnesses, um, diabetes or things that are associated with extreme obesity. Or people that take immunosuppressants. Immunosuppressants. These are, these are dangerous, dangerous um, uh, cofactors or co-indicators or comorbidities, I think they call them. And they are highly predictive of a bad outcome, particularly in the younger set. When you're older, nah, not so much anymore. But when you're younger, most of the people who've been dying, not, not completely without, certainly there are uh, completely healthy people who have passed away from COVID who are young. But for the most part, the ones who are dying do have uh, comorbidities which are identifiable. And I don't know the answer to this question, but I'd be curious to know, if are those people becoming yeah. vaccinated? Yeah, vaccination rates should be higher among those with comorbidities. Um, and every economic model out there would suggest they would because people do respond to that kind of incentive. We saw it with age. We certainly saw it yeah. with age. And, and, and your doctor, your doc, my doctor called me up. I mean, the nurse did and said, your BMI is over 30. Have you been vaccinate, vaccinated? And, and I said, said, it's all muscle, honey. Said, it's all muscle. <laughs> Adi said, but it's just over 30. We're just barely over 30. I don't believe in these categorical differences. Eric. If that, I was going to joke, if they were, if they would have put me on a scale, two big meals with Adi and I could have gotten to over 30. But let me just, <laughs> let me, the, the, the point I was actually going to make was, let's also say another piece of good news, though, that came out this week. And there's a lot of good news um, is the Novavax vaccine. So mm. now we have a fourth vaccine that appears to be 90 plus percent effective. Again, let's be clear again. It's 90 plus prevent effective on preventing the coronavirus. Uh, you're catching it, but it's 100 percent the same on hospitalizations and deaths. And this is one I understand that they can mass produce. Um, it's one that it may not have an impact on the U.S. because we have three working vaccines now. But this is something that could have a huge impact on the world. And this is actually one that, um, unlike Pfizer, again, I'm not being political here. Pfizer was not part of Operation Warp Speed, but the Novavax actually was. They were one of the companies that did receive the whatever it was, billion plus or $150 billion to ramp up production and everything else. And now it appears that they're going to have an effective vaccine that can be stored at refrigerator temperature, that can be mass produced and distributed widely. It, it could have a massive impact on the world. And so that's a piece of very good news. And again, it's similar to, you know, if we were talking about networks and homophily, the, the faster the world gets vaccinated, the better it's going to be because we're going to get less variants, less mutations, which will mean that, you know, all of us who are vaccinated um, will have less to worry about through potentially a I'll call it epsilon since I use Delta, um, <laughs> an epsilon uh, mutation will have less to worry about. Eric, one one follow up clarification: Is it a one shot shot one shot vaccination? Is that another question? I don't know the answer, but I don't think the answer is yes. And and by the way, it does remind me. I know Adi wanted to say something, but it just it did remind me. They continue to emphasize, and it just came out again today. If you got the Pfizer Moderna vaccine, you have to get that second shot. I understand that it's they, they came out with these numbers saying 80 percent effective, but it's not for as long a period of time. And so mm-hmm. the concern now is people that have gotten one shot of Pfizer or Moderna who didn't get the second shot. You hear this. Well, it's going to last nine months, 10 months, maybe years. Not if you only got one shot. So it's really reemphasizing the role of that second shot. And thanks, Matt. It, it's Novavax is two shots as well. Great. 
Do we know anything about compliance on that? Like what percentage of those who do get the first shot go on to get the second shot? That seems like something we should know. What would be your estimate of what that number is? I would guess it's about 80 to 90 percent. I would guess there's a certain fraction of people who were reluctant to first in the first place who got sick the first time. Probably just say, screw it, not bothering. I think Uh, I'd go I'd go below that number. I don't I, I was thinking 75 I mean, life gets in the way, one. There are inconveniences. And you, you just reminded me of some people don't like the impact. And so. Oh, it's a big deal. We talked about with the with the basketball players who, if they're middle of playoffs, are they going to risk being out for a day or two? You do get a sore arm. That never bothered me. I don't have a. I don't have to take a jump shot. Um, but your, your arm can be sore, sizably sore for a week. Um, mm. That's like a nothing to us. But if you're a professional basketball player, maybe. Well, um, anyway. Well, but I, see, I, I see what Matt just put into the chat. He said nearly 8%. If that's true, if it's really over 90%, that would be remarkable. My guess was going to be where Adi was, which was in the, you know, I I was thinking 80 to 85%. Okay. Yeah. okay. Better than I would have thought. I'm sorry, Adi, you were going to try to jump in. Yeah, I went, so I wanted to try to slightly move the conversation. You, you talked about uh, these huge billions and billions of people who do not have the opportunity yet to get vaccinated, and it looks like it'll be years before, potentially years before they do, which le- brings us to the subject of what are, what are the treatments? Are there effective uh, treatments for coronavirus? Um, and there are a few of them that are very, very expensive that are proven to be effective. Remdesivir has, is proven to be effective, although I don't believe it's effect size. And we all are effect size guys here, right? Is all that large. Um, in other words, a 20% dexamethadrone, the, the steroid, um, seems to be effective. And that also isn't a giant effect, effect size. What was the other one? The, the mononuclear okay, antibody? The, the, antibody? the uh, monoclonal antibodies seem to be quite effective, but... Unlike the other the other two, which are given late stage, those need to be given early in which and they're extremely expensive. And therefore, while they do have a good effect size, what the, the number you have to treat in order to save one life is actually quite massive. Right. So from the from the cost side of things, the monoclonal antibodies are not that effective. So the basic idea is you, you, you give it to 100 people, only two or three of them might get really sick. And for the monoclonal antibodies, it might be half that. That's a pretty, pretty big effect. So let's, size. Let's... Let's take a bet. That's not a bet, but not a real bet. But let's take a guess bet. So I I agree with you. It's probably going to be years before many people on the planet get the opportunity to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Which one is going to come first for them? The opportunity to be vaccinated or a treatment once you get coronavirus to actually prevent you from getting severely ill. Okay, so that's 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 the direction I wanted to turn because I wanted to mention about three or four or five, six, maybe six months ago, we had a conversation on our show about um, the drug ivermectin, right? So what is ivermectin? It's a anti-parasitical. Um, it was a hugely important drug. Uh, most people think of it as next to penicillin, the number, the second most important invention in health history. It, it's, it, it wipes out these parasites, it's, which are terrible, and particularly in third world countries. So we don't, you and I look at it, we don't need this drug. But uh, in, in, in for billions of people around the globe, it is an extremely effective anti-parasitical treatment. And it, the inventors of it won the Nobel Prize in 2015. I believe Merck was heavily involved in that. It's out of patent now. Um, what, what has been proposed and pretty widely studied in very small studies, because it's an out of patent, cheap, super cheap drug, is to give either uh, prophylactically, which means before anybody gets sick, or at very early stage, 
And the data from these small studies indicate that it's pretty effective. Um, and, and what's happening, of course, it, to muck it all up is that these Indian, in, I, I did some research in certain towns and towns, provinces of only 20 or 30 million people um, in India, they've been using it. And they've been reporting that it seems to have a pretty big effect. But how so, large, just so, just so our listeners can know, we all, we all know that we've heard 90 plus numbers from the Pfizer, Moderna, um, et cetera. What effect size are we talking about here on a prophylactic basis? Are we talking about it's 20%, 30%, 50%? In other words, you'd still rather be vaccinated by a long shot, but given you can't, this is certainly ah, um, good, not good so question. bad. Good question. Okay, so this is where, the th- this is where things get heated. And this is where it also gets controversial. Um, and I'm just starting to dig into some of these things. So maybe in the future shows, I'll have more in- information to bring to you. So the uh, if you aggregate what's called a meta-analysis, if you look at the 20 or, or so studies that have gone through, uh, they're not quite yet peer-reviewed. Only about five or six have been gone through peer-reviewed in publication. But there's about 20 that, that are pre-publication peer-reviewed. I've looked at some of them. Um, on aggregate, in a meta-analysis, it looks like it has about a 70% more decrease in mortality. It's not as good as Pfizer or Moderna v- vaccine. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to prevent you from dying. Still leaves 30% of people uh, dying. I think the Pfizer, Moderna prevention and mortality is probably close Let's to 99 percent. I just want to be precise. I know you want to be also precise with your words. Yeah. There's a 70 percent reduction. It's not that you have a 30 percent chance of death. No, no, no. So, so if your chance of death before was one percent, it's now three tenths of one. percent. That's right. That's right. And I think with the, the Pfizer, Moderna vaccine, mortality rates are more zero. like 99 percent. I don't think it's zero. I think it's that's clo- very, very close. But it's very, very low. So, no, you wouldn't. You, I don't think you would even remotely consider this over a vaccine. It really has to be thought of in terms of you don't have a, a vaccine. Well, let me ask you a question. Is there any reason why I, you can tell me, maybe you've done some research on this. If there are, let me make it, if there are not severe side effects of this, maybe there are, why don't I take some? Can I get some? I'll take it prophylactically, ah. even though I've already been vaccinated. Okay, so this is where things get get. get why can't I get a vaccine and this? Matter of fact, why <laughs> shouldn't I? No, no, I'm being questioned. Do you think there'll be a time where we'll be taking something prophylactically and we'll be taking vaccinated shots and we'll be taking boosters and this and maybe there'll be some oral supplement or something? Why, why wouldn't I want all three or four? Well, I mean, the real issue is to do with side effects. Now, uh, ivermectin is a very well-studied drug, as is hydrochloroquine before it. It was also very well-studied. But those do have side effects, right? You don't just take drugs that cause, you know, nauseousness and in certain kinds of illnesses, people with certain comorbidities or other illnesses. So uh, dosing, I mean, these things typically take 10 years before you get the, the studies right to get them get them um, dosed and accurately measured. And But what's interesting about it is that there's been a pretty pretty widespread kind of campaign to, to sort of discredit uh, the countries. It was really our countries that have been using it saying, don't take it. It's not studied. It's not effective. Um, and I don't think that the data itself supports. I mean, it's, it's a very cautious view, um, which is, is something that I think is potentially quite political to be so cautious in the middle of a pandemic. Now, here in the United States, where we have vaccines, I can understand you don't want to even give anyone the hint of an idea of a thought of a possibility that they can avoid taking the vaccine when there's something that it really isn't anything even remotely more as effective. But in, in most of the world where vaccines are still not available, you, you, you have to argue this needs to be studied more carefully. But there isn't any money to be made in it. And uh, and, and there aren't you know, if you're going to do a trial of remdesivir, 
you can they'll fire up a hundred million dollars to to coordinate a bunch of hospitals to give it to patients and they're all gung-ho to do this for for a drug that makes no money it's hard to get more than a few hundred participants in a, in a location and even that's often hard because these are early stage it doesn't work late it's it's the first part of disease and as we've talked about many times before early stage patients are very hard to get to Adi, this is all super interesting, and it is the natural focus for us as the pandemic, you know, we're not winding down yet, but we're a lot different stage than we used to be. As that shift from focusing on the U.S. to worldwide, our conversations have benefited over the last year from readily available data. We, we have multiple sources we can go to to understand what's going on, even at the county level, day by day, county level in the United States. What sources of information have you found, if any, so far that are useful and international? This is probably a good question for us in general. Like, how can we stay engaged in that conversation? How can we gather information about what's going on internationally? And do are there such sources? And if so, we need to start sharing them. Yeah, I think this is something for us to maybe bring on an expert to talk about it. I've read a bunch of studies about some of these drugs, and often they're done in South America, Central America, in uh, Iran, in Russia, in in um in India and they have a lot of these data sources if you go to corona around the world you're going to see province data for every indian province do you believe them i mean this is always an issue because they don't have multiple sources it's not i have to tell you you know i hearkening back to the old days our data wasn't so great we and it took a, a while to get it sorted out because we don't have a central uh, centralization of health um, data collection um, we just had a lot of it. I'm not sure, sure yeah. it was all that reliable, but we had a yeah. lot of it. And the, the broad arc of things are accurate, and certainly deaths are accurate, although the dates were, were not always accurate. We, we know when they were reported as, say, August 2nd, that could have been uh, the death could have happened two weeks earlier, or um, and when we didn't get those straightened out. And I think even to this day, they're not really straightened out in a lot of the public databases. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering about the, like the World Health Organization. I, what's the, we're looking for the international version of the CDC, at least for data searches. But anyway, it's, it's a question for us to pick up and carry forward in future conversations. Listen, fellas, why don't we wrap up there on the COVID conversation and on Q1 and take a short break. Come back. We still have three quarters to go. We'll open the conversation up to sports more generally. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Joined today by Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey. Shane is away. Shane will be back. You guys can join. We love it when you do. You can reach out via Twitter or via email. Our Twitter handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. Great way to reach out. Send us questions, suggestions, ideas, complaints, whatever you got. Love to hear from you. Also, email. We have a mailbag of sorts. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu we read everyone that comes in we share as many as we can online we love hearing from you guys i find this moment in sports somehow especially fun we think about the summer sleepy it's not sleepy at all right now we got nba playoffs nhl playoffs major tennis major golf euro euro soccer championship we've got Men's college baseball just got seated in Omaha. We got a lot we could talk about, and I'm sure I've missed some things. We've got college football talking about expanding the playoffs. What amongst all those things are you most fired up about? 
Well, we, I mean, we don't get to talk. Well, we can talk tennis all year long, but there are four times a year where tennis seems to be more important than others. Eric, you, you're, you're predictable. Just know, just know that I could have put a lot of money that you'd choose, you'd choose French Open as a top, top topic today. Well, understand, it's an interesting one because it is the one major in some sense in tennis that's, I don't want to say uncorrelated, but it's, you know. Less correlated. It's less correlated with the others because it's played on clay, which is a slower surface. Lots of countries and people don't grow up playing on clay. Obviously, there's a large European contingent of players that grow up playing on clay, but most U.S. players do not. Most British players do not. Most Australian players do not. So the other kind of hotbeds of tennis don't really grow up there. Um, But obviously, it was a major momentum, uh, major moment in the history of men's tennis and women's tennis, by the way. So let me start with women's tennis, because everybody's going to want to jump to men's tennis and Djokovic winning his 19th major. But the woman that won, um, Barbara, I might pronounce her last name wrong, Krachik, something close to that. Um, (laughs) Don't look to us for validation. You always show off this great Let me just say a couple things. Um, in the last, I think, 18 women's majors, she was the 13th first-time winner. She was not seated, right. so she was ranked, wow. I think, 33 wow. or 34. She was just outside the top 32, but she was in the low to mid-30s. Um, she beat a large number of seated players along the way, so it's not like she didn't beat him. She beat Coco Goff. She beat Sloan Stevens. She beat right. uh, Sakari. Um, she beat... Uh, Pavlyuchenkov in the finals. And so she beat a large number of seeded players. But again, by the way, the first time since 2000 this also happened, she won the doubles. She was also oh, the doubles right? champion. And so she was, she had been ranked number one in the world in doubles for a few years, but had never, I mean, I think she had played maybe five majors in her entire career. And she actually she just didn't qualify. And so she not only qualified, but she won the French Open. So we have to give a lot of respect and props. And of course, a lot of it happened when Ash Barty had to pull out the number one player in the world. Simona Halep didn't play the tournament. Venus Williams got knocked out fairly early. And so a lot of the seeded women played, but got knocked out early. So she didn't play in. Let's be clear. Great accomplishment. Congratulations for winning the French single and doubles. Hadn't been done since Mary Pierce in 2000. But she did not play a top five seeded player in this mm-hmm. tournament. It's just the way mm-hmm. the draw went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, can, so can, I, uh, can I just ask two questions? Um, uh, one would be, what were her pre-tournament odds of winning? And what are what do they think of her now? Um, did she make a big run up in the rankings after winning the French? Or is she still lingering? Well, of course, you remember, I can answer the latter more easily than I can answer the former. Maybe Matt can look up uh, the former, what her pre-odds were. Um, The way tennis works, it's a very simple system. It's a 12-month total point summation uh, situation. Um, The majors are worth 2,000 points each. Then there's the Masters 1,000s, et cetera. So she just won a major. She gets 2,000 points. I believe it moved her from somewhere around 33 to somewhere around 20 in the world. And so that's a big move up. Um, Maybe maybe she's somewhere in 15 to 20. But, of course, the big deal now is that with Wimbledon coming up, she gets seated at Wimbledon. And so now she'll be a top 16 seed at Wimbledon, which means if she moves up to like 15 or 16, which means she won't have to play a top seeded player until uh, someone rated higher than her than the round of 16 by definition. And so, of course, you know, points beget points. And so you win this tournament. Now, even if she makes the round of 16, 
and gets eliminated. Let's compare her to last year's Wimbledon, where she may not even have played. So she gets it's all about beating your points from last year to where your ranking goes up. So even if she ends up 16th and plays just to her seed, her seeding will go up because there'll be someone in the top 16 who played Wimbledon last year who did really well, who loses early, who won't match their points and will fall downwards. Listen, I want to I want to jump into the seed conversation because we had a thoughtful note from David Arkow. David is at Harvard. He's on the, you know, they have this great sports collective there, the analytics collective. It may be the only one that rivals what we have going on at Penn here under the tutelage of Professor Weiner. But um, David also plays tennis and he was interested. We, you know, we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, Eric. You got kind of up in arms about Medvedev um, having the whole bracket to himself on the other side. And then I, I got kind of pulled into it about how the seed system was so whack. And David very, you know, diplomatically points out, Look, man, it's not that different from kind of a, you know, the qualification that happens in previous tournaments, the points these guys rack up in previous tournaments, dictating your seed. Is that really so different from the Clippers being the four seed in this year's playoffs? Like the regular season determines your playoff seed. It's not a forecast of who's the best team. It's not like a, 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 a committee, the NCAA basketball committee. It's regular season qualifying you, and it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be imperfectly related to your power essentially and your and and i think that's a very thoughtful point that i i'll just take as a i'm just going to stand corrected on the tennis system and you've always said eric it provides incentives for those guys to play those tournaments which keeps the the blood and the money flowing through the tennis community as i always like to say it rewards winning right shouldn't actually winning tournaments important tournaments sort of have matter other than the money you make and the fame you get yeah the only the only concern i had with it Adi, is that going into the french open um we had the number of because of injury he didn't play as many tournaments we had the 13 time french open champion who was the four-time defending champion who hadn't lost a set in years um the three seed and we had someone daniel medvedev who played well in a lot of tournaments um has never won a major mm-hmm. had never even won a match at the french open i didn't say adi he had never won the french yeah. open he had never won a single match there and he was ranked number two at some point you could say maybe they need some form of context dependence for seeding at the at there and by the way uh, they wouldn't be the first wimbledon has seated federer higher than his ranking for years they may well do so going forward federer's number eight in the world right now maybe they'll leave him at number eight in Wimbledon maybe they'll move him up that was my objection was that we were all points aren't created equal and all tournament points aren't created equal if someone wins the you know the Hamburg open on grass and gets a thousand points for that or 500 points for that that's not highly correlated with your prediction of how the person's going to perform in the French open but Adi's uh, Kate's point is well taken it's about based on performance it's not a prediction system right, and so right. from that point of view I don't have a problem with it right 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 and uh, it's going to tie into a future conversation we have on tournament design and you can think about almost any league having a qualification stage and then a knockout stage and i've never thought about tennis this way before but basically all the other tournaments are the qualification stage for what becomes the knockout stage of the tournament and i think if you think about it that way you can connect it to other sports but eric you're holding you're burying the lead here man Djokovic ties or he comes within one of tying? Is he tying? He's, within, he's one within one of tying. Yeah, look, this was just so for people that don't know. So obviously for years and years and years now, well, once um, 
uh, Roger Federer passed Pete Sampras, which was at least six or seven years ago. Roger Federer has had the most majors. Um, it was tied at the U.S. Open last year by Rafa Nadal, who got to 20. 20 is the magic number that Federer and Nadal have. Um, Djokovic um, just uh, won the French Open, so he's now at 19. And he's also only the third player ever to win each major at least twice. Of course, right. Rod Laver did because Rod Laver won two Grand Slams. And, and that means by definition, he must have won each major twice. Um, and I think Roy Emerson might have been the other player. There's been, he's now the third. So, for example, people say, well, what about Federer? Well, Federer's only won one French. And you say, well, what about Nadal? I believe Nadal's only won one, U- uh, one Australian. And so okay. that mean that's why they haven't. But look, there's it's pretty hard to argue now that Nadal is not. I'm sorry, Djokovic isn't the greatest ever. Now here's why. First of all, if he if he's not, I understand he's got one less major. He's got a winning record against Nadal. I understand it's a slight edge, thirty to twenty eight. I'm going to get to it, Matt. Don't worry about it. We have 30 to 28. We have Nadal, uh, Djokovic over Nadal. I think Nadal, uh, Djokovic is over Federer, something like 29 to 23, something like that. Um, Djokovic, in my view, is going to end up with more majors than both of them. I think he's going to end up with 24 or 25. I would have said Nadal would have been in 23, 24, 25. But why next year do I think Nadal should be the favorite at the French Open? Maybe Djokovic should be the favorite at the French Open next year. He just beat Nadal at the French yeah. Open. Yeah. Um, I, I, he's got more Masters 1000 titles. I, I think, I, look, the two matches that defined their careers, in my view, when I look back five years from now, when all of their careers are open, are over, was this match, Djokovic beating Nadal at the French because jo- Nadal would have gone to 21, Djokovic would have stayed at 18. And the other one, which breaks my heart to this day, because people know I'm a Federer fan, was Wimbledon three years ago when Federer was up eight. This is Federer, the greatest grass court player of all time, was up. He had broke just broken Djokovic. He was up 8-7 in the fifth, 40-15 serving. Oh. And couldn't close out the match. And just so you know, to do your math. Oh. That would have left at that time, it would have made Federer 21 and it left Djokovic at 15 or 16. The two defining matches, Federer on grass, Djokovic on clay. Djokovic has now won, uh, Nadal on clay. Djokovic has now won them both. Well, and from behind. And um, from behind. Well, well, he, he was behind on Sissipas. I don't know if he was behind. Well, he, he lost. No, absolutely. He got drubbed. He was down 5 nothing in the first set against Nadal. Nadal won the first set 6-3. Okay. But okay. he had lost the first set. And okay. so, no, it was. And then against Sitsipas, as you mentioned, Kate, he was down two sets to love and looked out of it, totally out of it. If you yeah. told me after that second set, I thought he wasn't going to make it. So either way, he's won the two most defining matches in the last five years. I think he's now the GOAT. Well, I love what you've done there because you've you put him up against the two other guys on their preferred surfaces, and that's just a real nice combination. One, Give us one word on Sissipas. Is, is this guy, is this someone that we're going to be paying more attention to? Because we're kind of always looking for that next generation. So what? If, this guy had a good tournament, obviously. Took the first two sets from, from Djokovic in the, in the final. What, what's your take on him? And to what extent is he a clay court guy? Um, well, 
by the fact that he made the French Open finals and he, he was leading two sets to love against Djokovic, he's a clay court guy. As a matter of fact, I'm just stealing from John McEnroe, who was the commentator. They said, I thought his best surface was grass. And, and, and that's what oh McEnroe my. said. He's oh leading Djokovic 2-0 at the French. Clay's his best surface as of now. I think Sitsipas is for real. He's only 22 years old. Yeah. I think he's got the most skills of those up-and-comers okay. that I've seen so far. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up with a career somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's call it, he could end up as great as an Andy Murray, a Stan Rarinka, like in that three to five major range. You know, to predict someone's going to be in the seven to 10 range, you understand you're now talking about Connors, McEnroe, Lendl, et cetera. To go beyond that, you're talking Borg, Sampras. I can't put those expectations on sure. anybody, but could he but- be in the three to five range, Rarinka, Murray, et cetera? Absolutely. We just want someone to start winning some majors. That's all. We want someone new to start winning some majors. Eric, uh, speaking of young guys who you're trying to forecast the future, Trey Young, is he your guy? You, you believe in uh, your boy down there in Atlanta? Well, I'm, I'm so <laughs> upset about last night's NBA game because the Sixers had that. I've never seen a half of basketball played as poorly from a great player as last night. Joel Embiid was 0 for 12 in the second half. And um, it's a historically poor performance. Um, and in a crucial game, the Sixers would have gone up three to one. He cost them the game, including missing a wide open layup with seven seconds yeah, left yeah. on the clock. Yeah. Um, and um, surely yeah, he's he's hurt or something. Is that not? I thought for you know, sure he's he's absolutely he he's got knee problems. He's got back problems. He's got all of those. But it doesn't really explain his zero for twelve ness during this game. It was bad. But you asked about Trey Young. The challenge Trey Young is going to face is. I was I think, just, I was just, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> I think Trey Young, for people that don't know, I'm pretty sure I weigh more than Trey Young. And so, you know, my. Well, we've already established what, that your BMI is around 30, Eric. So. It's not <laughs> around 30. I said if Adi and I went out for a bunch of meals, mine's around 25, 26. But my point is, is that, um, he might weigh 170 pounds. I don't know what they list him at, but he, he can his, can he last over the long run? at being six feet, 170 pounds. Can he even last through this series? He had his, I don't know if you saw last night's game. It looked like he had, he was wrapped in a mummy tomb on his shoulder. I mean, he looked injured during the game. He hurt his shoulder. Mm -hmm. He's going to get pounded, pounded, pounded. Mm -hmm. But no, it was an exciting game yesterday. And the part that's also exciting about the NBA right now is the Suns, we have one team that won four games to nothing. And all three other series are now at two games to two. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Utah jumped out to a two nothing lead. The Clippers won the last two. The Nets jumped out to a two nothing lead. The Bucks won the last two. The Sixers and Nets have been, and Hawks have been going back and forth. But all three other series are at two-two, and it's not obvious who the winner of those are going to be. Well, the one that's the one. Well, let's let's take let's take that, Eric. Okay, which of those three would you put the most on? Pick one that you think is most likely. And I'm not looking at the markets, I'm, and I, I'm only barely paying attention. But I think I have a position on which team I would take. Of yeah, those three. Maybe I, I think of those of those three right now, mm-hmm. I would take the Clippers. I think yeah. the Clippers have figured Utah out. I think the Clippers have looked like the better team. In, in matter of fact, it's not obvious they shouldn't have won at least more of the Matter of fact, based on shot tracker, we're analytics people, based on the shots both teams took in the first two games, the Clippers should have won those games. They just mm-hmm. shot poorly. And mm-hmm. so I think the Clippers of all the 2-2 teams are probably the most likely and, and have the lowest variance because if you told me Harden 
and Irving were healthy, I would say maybe the Nets. The problem that's, is that's, is that they're, they're yeah, not I mean, healthy. That's, that's right. And, and, and I mean, the, the Bucks just took them to the woodshed this last game. And without, I mean, we don't know whether Harden's going to come back, but the chance of coming back from that kind of injury, which was already a re-injury, uh, I don't know. I think the well, Bucks we, we're going to find out tonight because tonight's game five in that series. We yeah. know Irving's not playing, hurt his ankle. Um, they're saying Harden has now been upgraded to questionable. But as look for someone that's had hamstring issues, I don't mean I'm I'm not pretending to be any type of major athlete, but hamstring issues, especially when there are re-injury of a hamstring issue, right. he could play the same thing that could happen. He could be play 43 seconds and they have to pull him out again, and so. I, I think right now the Clippers are healthy. I think of the two two teams right now, I give them the highest chance. Well, the, the you're talking about the the shots, the expected goal, the expected shots in the LA game. I, I listened to the fourth quarter last night. I actually wasn't watching. I was listening, and, and the ESPN feed was from Philadelphia announcers, and it was they were just beside themselves on how much Philadelphia had basically how Atlanta was in the game at all considering how badly they shot. And it turns out that they just had a zillion more shots because they got a bunch of offensive boards and didn't turn the ball over like at all. I think I I saw a stat somewhere. I don't know if it was the second half of the whole game. At one point it was like 12 turnovers for the Sixers and three for Atlanta. Yeah. You take more shots. This is the Adi Weiner rule of things. Um, Bigger N, more coin flips. And even if, you know, they got a ton of offensive rebounds. And the most crucial point of the game, by the way, which also was Embiid's fault, and you can tell I'm a little bit bitter here, was the Sixers were up four with about a minute 40 left. I forget, uh, maybe it was Collins got an offensive rebound, threw it out to Bogdanovich for a wide-open three. He made it. Now, all of a sudden, the Sixers are up one. If the Sixers had gotten that rebound up four with a minute 40 left, their chances of winning that game are Mm – in yeah. the, at least in the 80s. And instead, it, not only does Embiid not get the rebound, and it was gotten right over him, um, they made a wide-open three. And that, to me, turned around the game right there. That play, forget his missed shots. He didn't even get the rebound. Well, let, let's, let's see, what, let's see what's, what Sixers team shows up when they get back to Philadelphia for Game 5, and especially which Embiid shows up. But in general, I will say, I'll give – the NBA marks for entertainment in the postseason, but for the injuries, which have been a real problem. And you got to wonder whether, I mean, this is anecdotal, the, the few that we were focusing on at this moment, but there is evidence that soft tissue injuries were up this year in the NBA. And there's some concern that it was the, the quick turnaround at the last season, the, the different training schedule because of COVID, all those could be contributing to a higher injury rate in the NBA right now. Fellas, what about other, uh, speaking of injuries, one of the most, this wasn't even a game injury, but the most terrific thing I've seen in sports in a long time. Yeah. Was Christensen, is it Christensen? Erickson? Um, Erickson. Christian Erickson. Christian Erickson, I think. Uh, The star Danish footballer going down, collapsing with a heart attack uh, right before halftime in their opening match um, against Finland, I think. They, this is, they're in Copenhagen of all places. They're, They're the whole team here and the star player goes down. And apparently was 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 gone. Was his heart was not beating when the when the people finally got to him. But they got him back. They got him to the hospital. I've, I I happened to walk by TV just after this happened, and I was trying to figure out what what had happened. And they weren't showing replays, I think, because of the sensitive nature of it. And they were just showing players, and they were showing fans. I had never seen players expressing that kind of emotion 
in any game before. I, I, the only inference you could make is that the guy had died. And, and it was just extraordinary to try to make sense of real time. And thank God he, thank God he didn't. But I mean, it, for, it seems like if he hadn't received immediate attention, he would have been dead. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt. But the part that maybe surprised me the most was that obviously they suspended the game. I'm pretty sure, and Matt will correct me if I'm wrong. I was watching the game at the time, by the way. Um, I'm pretty sure they completed the game that day. They did. There's a lot of controversy. Over, 90 minute delay. There's a lot of controversy over the pressure they put on um, on on Denmark to come back and play. There's different stories coming out, but there was some threat. Apparently, some threat that they were going to give them a three nil loss forfeiture. So, so there's a lot of concern about the way it was handled by the European uh, Football Association. Um, and you know, they went on to lose that match, of course, and they're. You know their whole comp, their whole tournament was compromised, obviously. But um, let's talk about the Euros more generally. Uh, that the, we just what's going on right now? We, since we've well, reported, France was I, open up one nil. What's 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 the, the I think the final was one nil France. So just so, okay. just people know. So um, Adi always liked these terms. I just to remember remind everybody, and you'll see why I'm using this term in a second. When the World Cup is played historically, there are eight groups of four teams, and then two advance. So round of 16, it's round robin, meaning all four teams play each other. Then whoever has the most points advances, top two teams advance. Um, You always know every year in the World Cup, they call something the group of death, which means like, I can't believe these four teams are all in the same group. Well, in this group, in this year, it's the it's the one where France and Germany are in the same group with Portugal. And I, I forget who Bush the, was the defending champs, right? Correct. And I and forget France who is the, generally considered the best team in the world, the best side in the world right now. Is it best national team in the world right now? Well, I mean, Ronaldo's on Portugal and he just scored two goals today to become the all time leading scorer in this event. Um, Hungary's the other team, which is no pots or either. But the fact that France, Germany and Portugal and matter of fact, Adi, it's uh, uh, Kate, it so much relates to our French Open thing. Portugal was the team that wasn't ranked in quotes. And therefore that's why they ended up in the group with France and Germany, which were ranked. And so I asked, that's why I asked my kids, like, how could this happen? Well, that's because despite Portugal being the defending champs and having the greatest player on the planet by the rankings, they weren't there. So they got randomized and they got randomized into the group of death. Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a stunning collection of teams. There'll be interesting to see, what happens is the top two come out and then a handful of thirds come out depending on goal differential. So a third place team does have a chance to come out to the knockouts. What else is your attention from around that tournament? It's, it's a warm-up. Think of it as a warm-up for the World Cup. Um, these are generally the better. The Europe is kind of dominating international soccer right now, so you're seeing some of the best sides out there. Also, soccer, I mean, I put, we've had this, we had this conversation every four years, but I think soccer highlights are really tough to beat. I mean, like sport to sport, head to head, who's got the best highlights? I don't know. A good soccer highlight is tough to beat. Did you see this 54-yard goal that uh, – who Czech. Was it a Czech? The Czech player scored against Scotland in their first game. 54. He was just across the midfield, and he put this thing in. It was like the longest goal in, I think, men's major tournament history. Yes. So how does that happen? I mean, because that's a very, very long distance. The goalie would have not to, to have get come in. Out. The goalie yeah. would have to have come out. He was way, he was way out. It, they, the, you know, all the all the play was on the other end of the field, and so the goalie was way out. And I, I don't know exactly how the ball popped out to the midfield line there, 
but it was, it was still just barely got it in there, but it was extraordinary, good fun. It's not what you really expect, but I just encourage you to keep an eye on the European, even those of you who aren't big soccer fans, it's considered a warm up for the World Cup, which is next summer, and take advantage of, look, there's one great highest, but two, they care a lot about this. This is the biggest soccer tournament in the world outside of the World Cup. And so there's a lot of, if you like passion in sports, you've got a lot of passion. Well, let me ask you. So let me ask you guys. Let's suppose I told you, I'm just making this up. France beat Germany today. Let's suppose I told you France wins the Euro Cup. Okay, let's say I say, let's say I tell you that. How much would that raise your belief that France is going to win the World Cup? I don't think it means anything to me. I still think they're, it tells me that they're in the top six or eight teams, which I believed anyway going into it. I don't think there's much diagnostic value. Um, in them winning, maybe a little bit, but not much above one and eight. Uh, I'm going to add. Go ahead. I'd... No, I think I, I, I listen. My intuition is that soccer matches are not coin tosses, and that winning matters. <laughs> so I would up it a little bit. Yeah, five or five, five, seven percentage points, probability points on 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 France, something like that. All right, That's man. Good, good fun. We're going to be following that for the next week or two. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey here. Open mic, open sports. Gentlemen, I have a place I want to take you. I want to take you to Omaha, Nebraska. I'm going to pimp here a little bit for the college world series the final teams were set last night i think yeah monday the last of the series were played monday the final eight teams make uh what they call college world series they go to omaha it's been going to omaha for i don't know 50 years or something like that they they put them into two uh four team brackets they play double elimination on both sides and then the winner of each bracket play a two out of three for the championship so it's just the end of a long, fun tournament. Something you might not realize about it is that it's 64 teams, just like basketball, just like, the, just like March Madness is 64 teams. But instead of having single game knockouts, every stage has something more than a single game, which is really interesting. And the, I want to ask you guys what you think the consequence of a particular structure is here. Because they start out the first round, they play 16 14 pods and they play a double elimination tournament. So the t- they have 16 seeds. Each of those seeds hosts a regional. It's a double elimination tournament. And then each of those winners goes to a, what they call a super regional and they play a two of three. And then those eight winners go to Omaha and they play a double elimination. And then those two winners play a two of three. It's a really odd structure. If you think about it, double elimination, two of three, double elimination, two of three. Um, it's unique. They have to do that. So in terms of tournament design, the reason they can't play knockout is because there's too much randomness in baseball, right? You can play knockout in basketball because it's the most deterministic of the sports, but, and it's just like just the right amount of chance to get that similar volatility. You need to, 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 you need to reduce the volatility by playing these multiple rounds. Anyway, I just, at first, I just want to lay out the structure because it's kind of fun to think about Adi. Yeah, just uh, elaborate on the, do they play consecutively? Because in baseball, 
in, in basketball, they never seem to play more than more more than a, uh, a game every other day. In baseball, it's tradition to play game after game. That way, a single pitcher can't really dominate uh, the value of a team. You need at least three if it's three. If you have to play yeah. college What's- baseball, the, the the structure of college baseball is really built around these weekend series where they play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, the supers, some of the supers were Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So they're 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 pretty back to back. They are absolutely back to back. So uh, let me say what I like about part of the structure. Um, I like the idea of double elimination because it also means you're playing different teams. And so you're not playing the same team. Like I was like, why don't they just make it two out of three, all of them? Well, but then I'm playing you. Like I'm playing all the games against you. Maybe my matchup against you is not as good, but my matchup against someone else is better. And so I like the, I actually love the, the idea of a double elimination design. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it reduces variability, which is obviously in my mind is a good thing, but it also allows for what I'll call, um, it, it it takes out maybe some of the importance of matchups and because you're going to have to play more than one different type of team. So from that point of view, it, I, I think there's some beneficial aspects to it. Adi, can I, I'd kind of jump in and ask a question and maybe pose it as a, as with an answer is that every sport matchups matter. You're, you're professorial of you. Yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, but my matchups matter, but I would guess that I wonder in asking you guys, which sport do matchups matter the most and which sport do matchups matter least? Good. And I would argue that baseball. Do we want to talk I, about pro sports? Pro sports. Uh, yeah, well, no, well, we can, you can general. I mean, let's start with, with the, the big, the big uh, pro professional sports. We can throw soccer in there as well. Um, my general question is: I th- I would guess that baseball matchups matter least. That whatever you do to win, I mean, there is some value in it, and maybe in, in the college level it's even bigger. But and if I had to, my intuition, and this is why I turn to you, my intuition is that football it matters most. Um, matchups, maybe basketball. I don't I really gonna, know. And I'm, I'm asking basketball. I was going to go basketball. We certainly, yeah, I was going to go basketball. And, I, and what I do know is that we've Rufus and I looked pretty hard. It's been years since we did it, but we looked really hard for Matt for a way to make matchups matter in, in football and, and had a hard time doing it. Mm-hmm. Basketball, you hear people talk about it all the time. I mean, this is this is the way people break down basketball games. I don't have enough experience with analytics to say, but I'm going to I'm going to put my money on basketball being the most of the three. OK, yeah, I, I, I was going to go exactly where you went. All I right. think baseball's the least. Yeah. Um, uh, however, the only way I could imagine it, you actually brought up one factor, which is one team just doesn't have enough starting pitchers to pitch a three-game series or something. That's um, right. It could yeah. be left-handed, right-handed, which does make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could have an all-lefty pitching staff. You could have a bunch of lefty hitters. So that that matchup could matter. But if you asked me which is the least, I would have said that. And I was struggling between football and basketball, the same discussion you and Cade were just having. But yeah. I think I resigned myself to basketball. I think matchups matter a lot in basketball. And um, in football... I think they do too, but I, that would be my guess. Baseball, the least, though, of the major sports, yes. Let me give you just a couple of last words on the College Baseball World Series. One of the – I told you we had 16 seeded teams to start the whole thing. They each hosted a regional. Um, how many of those 16 – well, let's put, flip it around. Of the eight teams in Omaha, how many do you think were seed? How many came up out of that top 16? How many of the final eight came from deeper – than the top 16. We got eight teams in Omaha. 
Uh, okay, I'm guessing at least half came from uh, deeper than 16 and about half from the top. That'd be, that'd be my guess, four and four. Well, let, let, let's just think about this for a second. So I, I was just trying to do the math here. So if we have 16 seeded teams, they're, they're in a one to three ratio. There's 16 of them and 48 no, of the others. Right. Right. And Correct. so um, if the teams were just, if we just randomly assigned them, we would expect about one third, uh, one quarter. One Sorry, quarter, one two. Quarter. No, one quarter, right, two. So I believe the number is bigger than two. The question is, how much bigger than two is it? So my gut would say of the top eight left, it's probably four or five. That's the, but, but four or five seeded or not seeded? Four or five seeds. I, I went with four and four, straight even. That okay, was so did, do you remember I told you the structure, double elimination, two or three, double elimination, and that, well, we played double elimination and then two or three. So a lot of games have been played. And then you might, the next thing you need to know, I think you need to think about the distribution of quality. Well, that's the thing. I'm, that's my unknown. That's right. what I don't know, which is why yeah, I right. was trying to say under uniformity, yeah, I'd expect right. two. So how far away from well, uniformity can, are they? And then, of course, even if the distribution, let's say my mean strength is, let's call it on some scale of five and yours is a four, what does that mean for game-to-game outcomes in two out of three series, which I don't know either? So I, I, I'm guessing you're saying I'm way overestimating by four or five, but we'll see. No, no, I'm actually thinking, I don't know. That's What's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, we only got one. This is only one year. We can look at past years. But, I don't, the thing is, is I don't know the distribution of talent in, in college right. football. So the, the, I just don't one, have a sense of it. One, one of the motivations for this conversation is that it's, it, it, it elucidates key factors in tournament design mm-hmm. and we've, we've named a few and as you look across these different tournaments you see the commonalities you see the differences before Kate gives us the answer by the way adi just some as someone i know who studies elo models quite a bit yeah. the other thing these are these idea that every team has a relative strength parameter even if i told you the distribution you need to know the if you like what's called the discrimination parameter or the slope coefficient, which is again, if I'm a nine and you're a seven, well, those are arbitrary scales. What but does that Eric, nine and you, seven mean, and what's the probability a nine beats a seven or something like but that? Eric, 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 for the same distribution by whatever parameter, you know the sports well enough to know that basketball discriminates better than football, which discriminates better than baseball. Absolutely. So you're suggesting the discrimination parameter, just to build my intuition, is probably lower in baseball, which sure. means you'd lean towards, let's say two is your lower bound. I'm not saying it couldn't be lower than two. It could be lower than two, but it would be surprising if it were lower than two. That's right. That's right. But you're going to lean more towards the two range because the discrimination parameter is small. Okay, but this, this, is, this is exactly where I want to go because we talk about this. We don't usually think about, we don't usually bring all the factors to the table at the same time. And the, and the missing factor here is the distribution of talent in college baseball. And none of us have an intuition for that because we don't watch college baseball enough. No, we but don't. Remember, remember, for example, just to show you how important this is in tournament design, consider the virtues of women playing best two out of three in major tennis tournaments as opposed to the men playing best three out of five. The, the, the intuition many people have is that the distribution, well, it's not the case now, but historically – it was the case that the distribution was skewed more in women's. And if you wanted enough chance in it, you needed to play fewer, smaller, fewer sets. Right. Yeah. right. Because you, the same person would win all the time when it's skewed right. So, so, so the distribution is critical. I mean, let me tell you another place this matters. What's happened in college football 
in the last 10 years. Adi, you and I know this because of our long simmering project on exactly yeah. this topic. What's happened to talent distribution in college football? It's concentrated. It's concentrated. Everyone's talking about this now. There's bet, There's the, the inf- better information. There's more efficiencies in travel. There's The best players are being recruited to the best programs increasingly um, in an increasingly concentrated manner. So if that's true, what implications does it have for optimal tournament design? Well, you've got to let more in to allow for – because just because Team A is better than Team B – it doesn't mean that A is going to beat B on any given Sunday. We need to know the distribution of outcomes given the talent pool on any given day. Hold on and a second. When, when you say optimal, what do you Yeah, that's right. Adi's going to write, ask, what's the objective? So I, 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 have a, my, I would hypothesize that there's an optimum amount of variability in tournament outcomes, that we don't want to watch a sport that always crowns with 100% reliability the best team. We also don't want to watch a sport that is just flipping coins, that there's an optimum amount of variability. And that's one of the objectives in tournament design. That's not the only objective, but I would suggest. How about the following? How about I give it the following heuristic? And I don't, this isn't an optimal. It it could make it an optimal criterion. I want to make sure that every team that, that is put into the tournament has at least an X percent chance of winning the tournament. I don't know. See, we got see, now we have other objectives, Eric. We've got it. We've got some inclusivity objective, like you know, the sixty-four going to sixty. No, but that's how people complain. They're like, "You didn't." I'm making this up. You didn't put in uh, Texas Tech, or you didn't put in this team. They were the five seed. They had a chance. They could have beaten Alabama. They could have beaten Clemson. And that, to me, what chance does North Macedonia have in the Euros this year? Oh, very small. Uh, I mean, maybe zero. I don't, oh. Close to zero. <laughs> is optimal, chan- optimal design designed to make sure that the best team have the highest probability of winning? If, they, if you're some team who has the best power score, if you will. But you're always the- going to have that. Almost any structure. By the way, be- Kate, what you just said about North Macedonia doesn't violate what I said. I didn't say you couldn't include teams that have lower than that. I said that every team that has at least a certain percent chance get in, but it doesn't mean you can't make it larger oh. than that. Oh, yeah. I think that's interesting. Like, what, that's qualification. Those are qualification criteria. I think it's a wonderful way to think about it. Right, Eric? Right. So, you know, excluding TCU, that Baylor TCU year or whatever, that there, there's some really interesting examples. All right, well, what's the number? Come on, what's the number? It's, 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 stringing it out. <laughs> I'll make a prediction. It's some number. It's no, an integer, no, and no, it's no. some number between zero and eight. You know, I just used that as bait to have this conversation. I want to talk about this other stuff. I'll give you the numbers, though. It's two. Two are unseated. So I, the, this year, I don't know how. Wait, two were unseated, unseated or two so, were seated? So we didn't do enough. I yeah, predicted yeah. four, and, and so that's and – and, and the six. answer is six? The answer is six, yeah. yeah. Four seeds um, – well, I mean, the most you could have is eight, and six are. So um, it, I look at these seeds, and by the way, the, the, all the top seeds, except number one, Arkansas was the overwhelming favorite this year, overwhelming, and they got knocked out in the Supers by NC State, unseeded NC State. Um, the, the, other than two – Tech, one of the reasons I'm talking about it, predictably, Texas is in there. Texas is the two seed. Tennessee is the three seed. Bandy's the four. Arizona's the five. Six is out. Mississippi State is seven is in. Eight is out. Stanford at nine is in. And then the two non-seeded are NC State and Virginia. But it struck me as uh, pretty uh, 
they, 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 there's not a lot of variability. Maybe, maybe two out of eight is, is close to optimal, but that's a, there's a lot of highly seeded teams left. So let me ask a question. This is, as you know, what economists do all the time in the kind of the structural economics world. Let's imagine I said, instead of the um, uh, double elimination, two out of three, double elimination, two out of three, and that's the only one they played. So that's the only one we know the outcomes for. But suppose I told you it was going to be a single elimination in all rounds. Yeah. Could we build a mathematical model to forecast how many, what the counterfactual outcome would be? And the reason we need to know this as statisticians and as people, we're going to consider, I mean, I see matches put up on the screen, seeds, like the top seeds have counted for more than 75% of participants. Maybe we should build a mathematical model, understand the impact of different counterfactual designs and pick one that is, has better, and I don't want to say better, has different a different distribution well, of outcomes. The, what, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, have, you can have the you can have the conversation. You can be informed. It informs your model would inform policy because they're fundamentally policy decisions. Right. But you can't make the, you're making them from speculation. So, Matt saying that number one regional seeds, which means the top sixteen, have accounted for seventy five percent of all college world series participants, which is exactly the number this year. And so right. he's he's saying. They're, they're landing. This is a representative year. And I would claim that that's, that's not bad. I think I'm not bothered pretty, by that at all. It's pretty close to what you want. But one of the reasons I think this is worth talking about right now is because college football is talking about changing their system. And do you have any sense, Eric, what do you think the objectives are among the decision makers for the college football expansion decision? Are they sitting back saying, run the simulation? What, what's the optimal variability and outcome? What's the, what's, what's, the, what's the minimum chance of winning the thing that we want no. to use the threshold to guarantee no. somebody's participating in the playoff? Are they doing any of those things? No, I don't think so. I think they want to maximize the number of games that are, and you can define it however you want, that are important during the season. And so they want the last couple weeks, you know, this is what's happened in baseball. We've talked about this by including the wildcard teams, even the purists in the game have to agree that it's made half the baseball games interesting the last month of the season where normally the fraction might be 10 or 15%. We grew up with, I mean, most teams were not relevant in August, right? It's Correct. Just... Even September, forget September, you're right. Even by August, they weren't relevant. I think college football would be extremely happy if there were, on the final two or three Saturdays in December that there were 20 games Massey Peabody had to watch to update their system so that these would help in the projections of the college football playoffs. And right now you've said this many times, like, damn, there's like one game to watch this weekend that might actually Mm -hmm. impact things. If that number tripled, quadrupled, I think that's the objective function that they care about. So I think that is an important one and, um, and maybe the most important one. Um, but, and let's acknowledge that there are multiple objectives and obviously decision problems with multiple objectives are harder and we tend to want to simplify them. But what, what this latest proposal smacks of is more just real politics. And it's... Uh, what is the, the exact proposal? Is it 12 or what is it? Going to 12... And it has a lot of nice features, no question. But the one interpretation is that the SEC said, yeah, you know, four, we, we, we're landing two a year and four. We like that pretty good. If you're going to go to eight, 
and you're and you're gonna you're gonna auto auto you know enroll a couple of people. You're gonna, now you're gonna bring in the top G five. You're gonna let the Pac twelve if they win whatever. We're losing share essentially. Right. What the SEC said, which is just sheer negotiation power. You can't you can't even you almost have to admire it. They're like, yeah, you know, well, what about twelve? Because what happens under twelve, Eric? Yeah, well, now there's three or now four SEC teams yes, in there. Now you got more at larges, and who's going to benefit the most from the at larges? The SEC has. Just to be clear, the top four teams would get a buy then. So eight. Well, would... here's a wrinkle that that I do like that Shane and I stumbled onto last week, and turns out to be the case. There, the 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 setup is it's the top six conference winners, the top six rated conference winners. This is by committee, the way yep. they've been things. And then six at large. And then the top four seeds who get buys all have to come from the conference winners. That's the only redeeming feature to me about this because I want the conference championships to matter. I don't want, you know, Auburn, the 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 SEC West runner up to be getting a buy whenever you've got you know, somebody, Oklahoma. I completely, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I agree with that. The loser of the SEC championship game should not be ahead much of much less, a, much less the third or fourth SEC team that comes in. But so it also points out just how important, I mean, that, you know, fourth versus fifth is because um, again, as you know, um, at worst, it, it has your probability at, you know, at best, sorry, it has your probability going from the four to the five seed. Yeah, Eric, I, I you, you know, we, we, that was a text message or email between us or something. And I just couldn't agree more. That's a real flaw in a system when there are these discrete breaks in the consequences. Well, you said how much you hate the NFL. Now only the one seed gets no, a buy. No, it's, it's absurd. You've got this continuous seed, one through eight or whatever it is, but you've got this big break in consequences between two of them. That, that are, that are, it's not associated with anything else. But if you associate it with winning a conference, fine. It's categorical different accomplishment during the regular season. So I'm okay with the categorically different. At least you like it. You probably like it more, at least in the NFL, because at least there's a deterministic function that determines who the one seed is. This is up to a committee. <laughs> That's that's true. That's true. All right. That has been three quarters. We've got a great interview coming up with Dan Rappaport about the U.S. Open. Stick around for a fourth quarter. Between now and then, uh, we're going to step away for a quick break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter's become our interview segment during pandemic have my buddy Eric Bradlow still in here with me and we're welcoming into the show now Dan Rappaport Dan's been here before but it's been a couple years he covers golf for Sports Illustrated and Golf Digest Um, fantastic voice in the world of golf we've been it's been fun hearing him as a youngster a couple years ago less of a youngster now Dan glad to have you back yeah, I'm an absolute grizzled veteran at 26 years old. I'm, I'm basically <laughs> about, about to retire, about to retire. Yeah, you, your voice is changing. It's getting a little, you know, that raspy <laughs> middle age thing coming yeah. on. Dan, uh, we thought about you. We knew we had a major coming up. It's, it's, uh, it, there's a Phil story in the air. There's just, it's a good time in golf. And we thought it'd be fun to check back in with you and find out what you're thinking about. We know a little bit about what you're thinking about because you're writing so much. And so you just put a piece up today about the first round pairings at the U.S. Open. It's a bunch of fun pairings. So can you give us the backstory on this? Is it true that the U.S. Open debuted this whole concept a few years ago? Yeah, kind of. Um, you know, now you see with, with PGA Tour Live, 
the PGA Tour is a product that people pay for and, and it's exclusive early round coverage that's before they put it on Golf Channel. And so the people who are paying, they want to reward them by showing them stars. So it's, it's very common now to see Brooks Kepka playing with Dustin Johnson, playing with, I don't know, John Rahm. But it wasn't always the case. And it was actually kind of at the 2008 U.S. Open at Torrey Pines where the USGA put together Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and Adam Scott, who were the top three players in the world at the time. That was like kind of unheard of. They wanted to spread them out. The idea was, you know, if we put right. one guy in this wave and one guy in this wave, the fans will want. But they, the USGA started congregating uh, the big stars. And they've also been pretty cheeky with their pairings. They, they've put together guys with similar last names. You know, they, they put Tom Hoagie with Bo Hogue today. Um, they put, <laughs> they, they'll put like three South Africans together. One year, they put, and I don't, I don't want to sound indelicate, they put three really fat guys together, like fat golfers together. It was, I think it was Shane Lowry, like Stadler or whatever. And one of the guys was like really cool about it. He was like, this is hilarious. And Shane Lowry, I think it was Shane Lowry. Don't quote me on that. Was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really find it funny. So they oh definitely, actually they definitely the made some. The pairing that I found so interesting was there were lots of them. I found there was one I remember that had, I didn't look at it maybe Dan as carefully as you did, but I saw three masters champions together. I saw like Adam yeah. Scott with Sergio Garcia and, I and Bubba maybe, Watson. And Bubba Watson. So I was like, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Three Masters champions of people yeah, that have the, never even did, come close to winning the U.S. Open. I think they did Shane Lowry this year, um, Francesco Molinari, and Henrik Stenson. So guys who have all won one British Open. I mean, they, they definitely have like a – they like to – it's cheeky. I, I also it. liked I also liked one other pairing I'd love to hear your thoughts of. It, it basically seemed to be Jordan Spieth and his buddies. Yeah, so it's three Dallas guys, right? Will Zalatoris. Uh, Scotty Scheffler and Jordan Spieth. Those guys all grew up in Dallas. They all still live in Dallas. Spieth and uh, Scheffler went to UT. Salatoris right. did not. He went to Wake Forest. But that's yeah, another one, right? Guys who've been playing together since they were 14 years old. So you always know when, when the USGA releases pairings that there's going to be a little ones. And it's, it's kind of fun to think about, like, what's the uniting link between these guys? Right. Dan, you got a story there somewhere. You need to get down to those meetings, the planning meetings. That's probably a lot of fun for those guys to that, kick around. That probably is a lot of fun. So uh, any other pairings before we leave that topic that has your eye, that Dallas one is the one that caught me, of course, with two Longhorns in there. And Shepard's been playing great. You know, he's, he's, he hasn't quite hit it yet, but he's been in the mix over the last few months. And so he, he could break through at any time. Zalatoris obviously was a big story in the Masters. Speed seems to finally have his game back a little bit. So that, that pairing, that grouping works in a lot of ways. Totally. The other one I got my eye on is, uh, and, and I think a lot of other people have their eye on this, not saying it's a unique call, but, uh, you know, the Brooks – Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa. Yeah, I ranked the top hundred players uh, for this major. I do it for every major, and I had Brooks number one and Colin Mor- Colin Morikawa number two. I yeah. really like both their chances this week, so it's going to be a lot of fun watching those guys. And Justin Thomas is just such a gamer. You know, you know, playing alongside Brooks and and uh, and Colin that he's not going to want to embarrass himself out there. He's been playing a little dicey recently, but you know, he's so good that he's, he's he can flip the switch, and we saw what he's capable of the players. So that's another one I'm I'm looking forward to watching. Talk to us a little bit more about Morikawa's game. Uh, He obviously broke through with the major last year, a charismatic guy, but people don't, he doesn't get quite the attention that Kepka, no one really gets the attention that Kepka gets for lots of reasons. But can you, from, can you give us kind of your, your just at the ropes perspective on Morikawa? Yeah. So uh, I actually wrote our, we did a cover story on him in January. So I spent a good, good amount of time with him. I wrote that cover story. Um, Kind of a throwback player a little bit. You know, we're in an age where 
so much of the game is dominated by bombers and by distance. You look at guys like Justin Thomas, might not be very big, but he hits it a mile. Brooks Kepka the same way, obviously, Bryson hits it a mile. Morikawa does not. Um, he's somewhere around 70th probably in driving distance, but he's statistically speaking, and, and this is going to sound like hyperbole, but it's not. He's the best iron player we've seen since Tiger Woods. Um, his iron play is phenomenal. Here's a stat for you. There's a stroke. There's a, I'm sure you guys are familiar. Mark Brody created strokes gain statistics. Um, his lead his so he leads the tour in strokes gained approach. His lead over number two in the rankings, which is Justin Thomas is larger than Justin Thomas's lead over number 30. So he's, he's like a standard deviation above. He leads the tour in strokes gained over for the season, last 50 rounds, last 36 rounds, last 24 rounds, last 12 rounds. So he is just consistently the best iron player in the world. And, and it's kind of different than Tiger. Tiger was, you know, when you watch him, he's always shaping his shots. There'll be a a low draw and then a high cut and then a a dead straight one. Morikawa plays this little two yard cut and he plays it on basically every single shot. Um, So it's really, really fun to watch. It's incredibly precise. Mm-hmm. What it, it, it raises questions that I mean, what makes a guy that much better? Like, what is it about his game? If the guys who look at his swing or break down, break it down, what do they think it is that makes him so much better than the next guy at iron play? Yeah, so it just depends on how technical you want to get. I'll say he's a fantastic rhythm, which I think is a great place to start. Um, fantastic very, rhythm, you, rhythm, you said? rhythm. Yeah, he takes it back very slow. Nothing's rushed. Um, there's a concept in golf called dynamic loft, which is, again, we're getting kind of in the weeds here. Let's but, do it. Let's do it. What's um, dynamic loft? So if you think of the club, let's say a club has, uh, you know, let's say a six iron, and I'm just guessing here is like around 30 degrees of loft or 20. It doesn't really matter. What, let's say a club has 30 degrees of loft. When it hits the ball, it doesn't have 30 degrees of loft because the, the shaft is leaning forward, right? So the, the dynamic loft is what is the loft of the club when it's actually at impact? Okay. And a mark, of, a mark of a really good ball striker is a very consistent dynamic loft because what it results in is the same contact over and over. If you think about it, like there's, there's a lot of guys hit the ball a lot of different ways. Some of them kind of sweep it off the turf. Some of them kind of dig and take big divots. He's a sweeper, kind of like Tiger was. Doesn't take big divots. Justin Thomas is the same way. A lot of the best iron players are like this. Doesn't take big divots, but the key is that his dynamic loft is extremely consistent through impact. So the club, the ball flies through windows and he's able to know exactly how the ball is going to come out. And that's a, a big confidence boost for iron play. Mm-hmm. We're, you were an analytics show, as you know. Do you have any sense into Morikawa's use of analytics? Is he different from the average player, average young player these days in his use of it or not use of it? Um, I would say he's kind of in the middle. So I actually just wrote another story um, about this guy, Scott Fawcett, who has created this system called Decade, which is a course management system. That's we, just had this, on, we just had Scott on maybe four weeks ago. We're practically okay. his promoter. He should be paying <laughs> yeah. us. We talk yeah. about Fawcett so much around here. Yeah, exactly. So um, I know that Colin is familiar with Decade. Um, the way it works now is a lot of college coaches have their guys sit through Scott's seminar. Um, as part of like when they're in college. So he's familiar with the concepts. I don't think he's necessarily, sorry. Give us a real quick summary. Give our, especially our, our listeners who haven't, <laughs> the four that haven't heard us talk about Scott Fawcett over the last couple of months. Give us your, in fact, I'd be curious, what's your thumbnail sketch of Scott Fawcett's decades system? Um, I think it's a way to reduce a lot of things that people have sort of felt in golf in their, uh, as like a hunch, he quantifies all of it. So there's been this, this long held notion in golf that got, you know, the best course managers play aggressive shots to conservative targets, but that's kind of a, 
it's very theoretical, right? Like, what does that really mean? Scott has devised a system based on thousands and thousands and thousands of shots of data points from PGA Tour players um, where he understands how wide dispersions are. And so he doesn't think of golf shots as one single golf shot. He thinks of it as, imagine if a, if a golf swing was a, was a cannon, okay? And the cannon was kind of accurate, but not very accurate. And so it, it, it shoots things into the air and the ball goes where it's going to go. He uses that as his basis for where you're supposed to aim, as opposed to a lot of people think about their best shot and they try to aim for their best shot. And what happens is because it's a cannon, we don't know where it's going to go. Oftentimes, most times it doesn't go there. So what Scott's trying to do is give yourself the mathematically optimized target to allow yourself the most room for the variance that's going to happen because, again, golf swing is imperfect um, mm -hmm. and, and using that to, to pick mathematically optimized targets. Okay. Wonderful description. Appreciate that. We love it so much because we're all about variance on the show. We think everybody should be making more robust decisions in all walks of life considering variance. So, okay, you, we ask you about Murakawa and analytics and more generally kind of the younger generation's reliance on it. And you went to Fawcett. You've got a recent piece on Golf Digest, I think, on Fawcett. I do, yeah. I mean, I think he's not the only one, but a lot of guys who have had a lot of success, I mean, Will Zalatoris being one of them who finished second in the Masters, I think it was kind of a seminal week because the Masters has long been considered this course where there's so much course knowledge, right? You have to learn how to play the course and you have to, shape the ball both ways, which Scott kind of tells his players not to do. Um, and there's this classical notion that you're not, you're not going to compete or contend for the Masters in your first Masters. Well, Will Zalatoris never been playing the Masters before, and he finished one shot back. I mean, he was, yeah. he was that close. And I think yeah. it was a, a kind of a wake-up call that these guys, part of the reason that you see these younger players winning so much is because they're smart. They know how to play and they know how to prepare I mean, nothing is tricky anymore. It's like you can see all these courses on, on Google Earth. And these guys, these kids are so good at it. They can see the elevation changes. They can see how wide things are. Um, and, and back in the day, you know, it used to take young players a little bit of time on tour to understand these concepts. But now they understand it from the time they're 15 or 16 years old. And what, what mm -hmm. the result is, is for guys like me who try to play in these mid-ams, you know, or these amateur events, sorry, the kids are just too good now because they used to, they've always been physically good, but they used to be dumb and they used to be fire right at every flag. And you could, you could count on them making one or two stupid double bogeys around. Yeah, yeah. And they just, they just don't do that anymore. And it's really, really hard to beat them. Wow. That's interesting. He's managed a way to, 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 to tamp down the testosterone of a 15 year old boy. That's amazing. That's a real advance for civilization. What do you got, Eric? So Dan, let, let me try to build on something you've said and to understand which source of variation might be larger. So you mentioned Morikawa. Let's say he hits it 300 on average off the tee, and let's say somebody hits it 330, 340, the big hitters. It also means, of course, they're going to be using a much different club to shoot it to the green. So what you're suggesting is Morikawa's dynamic loft and variance compensates enough for maybe him having to shoot a six iron to the green where someone else is shooting an eight iron. Cause that's what I think the, that's what we as statisticians want to understand being 30 yards closer and using a more lofted club has to also reduce variance. And you're suggesting that Morikawa is able to overcome in some sense, his maybe using one or two clubs more. A hundred percent. I'm going to give you a stat that you're going to absolutely love, but yeah, I mean, it helps to think of variance as like a cone, right? Like a triangle. So the, the, the shorter the shot is, the, the tighter the variance. Is. It's pretty easy to understand. But when Colin Morikawa was in college, um, he took a dispersion test. 
Uh, I, I think it was a tailor made. I'm not entirely sure where it was, but basically they hook you up to this track man, which is the machine that you guys know measures everything that has to do with the golf shot, how far it goes, where it goes, how much it's spinning, the loft, the dynamic loft. Um, and Collins dispersion with a six iron when he was in college was about the same as the average PGA tour pros with a pitching wedge. Well, well that's, oh that will, that will say the, if that's, that's the and, answer to my question. And, and that's the answer. And he's been asked that before, you know, do, do you feel like you need to get longer? And he says, well, you know, obviously it can get stronger and get longer, but I have confidence that with my six iron and a guy has an eight iron, I don't feel like I'm giving anything up. So that's you're exactly amazing. right. He basically his, his, he's so accurate that he is able to overcome um, whatever distance deficiencies he has. He's not short and he's continuing to get longer. I really like his ball flight. He hits like a really flat cut. So it rolls quite a bit. So if it's firm, you can really get it out there. It doesn't carry it nearly as far as Bryson or well, Brooks or Could DJ. one also then make predictions on which courses he might do better and worse? Because if he only hits a cut and I'm, you know, I'm talking to a scratch golfer here and I'm a, you know, well, if par is 95, I'm a scratch golfer. Um, but um, if, if he can only hit a cut, wouldn't there, if there's a bunch of holes that are dog leg left, wouldn't that potentially make his chances worse? And as we look at Torrey Pines, does, is Colin Morikawa have less of a chance depending on the course structure and the actual design of the course? Sort of. Um, when I say, you know, it's not that he can only hit a cut. It's definitely what he's most comfortable with. I think he'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of these guys don't hit cuts with driver because again, we're getting, we're getting into the weeds here, but just the way that the faces are, are created these days there's a lot it's called like a gear effect so like if a ball hits on the on the heel it like goes straighter and if a ball goes on the toe it doesn't hook as much the, the technology is so good now that it's really hard to turn a ball right to left Rory McIlroy who made his all his you know his majors and and, and broke out to stardom hitting that big high draw he hits pretty much exclusively a cut off the tee now and they asked him why and he said I you know it's just the drivers he said you can't really turn them over but the three woods huh. you can turn over the three woods you can turn over. You can put them back in your stance. And because it's it's a little bit more loft, there's less of a possibility of a double cross. And so a lot of these guys can turn over their three woods. Zal towards the same way. Never hits a cut, never hits a draw with his driver, but he can hit one with his three wood. Um, Interesting. So I would say that, that if they need to hit a draw, a lot of times they'll go down to three wood. Um, you don't, you know, you don't really need to hit a draw into any flag. I think that's kind of overrated. That's what Scott would tell you. Like, even if a flag's on the left side, like, yeah, if you're trying to hit the ball in the hole, then it would probably be better to hit it <laughs> yeah. right to left. But, you know, these guys aren't chasing flags quite as much as you think they are because 72 holes is a long time. You know, you play most of the middle of the green. You make your, you do your damage on the par fives and you avoid, bo- you avoid bogeys. Bogey avoidance is really the key. So I think he can win. You know, he's the number four player in the world. He can win on any golf course. Mm-hmm. It's a, with him, it's about whether he putts well because sometimes he really doesn't. And if he really doesn't putt well, he's not going to have a chance. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dan Rappaport. Dan covers and writes for golf, both for Sports Illustrated and Golf Digest. He is a second-time guest on our show after showing up as a almost a rookie writer a couple of years ago. Dan, uh, talk us talk to us about the Phil. Obviously, is a big story not only coming off of the oldest major winner um, at the PGA, but also playing his hometown, Torrey Pines. Um, we took the cynical, jaded view right after that win that he might not even make the cut at Torrey Pines. What is your position on how Phil's going to play out here? Are we too cynical? Or are we kind of base rates and we're it's reasonable? Well, first thing I have to say, my bosses will get mad if I don't. I don't work for Sports Illustrated anymore. Just Golf Digest. Oh, um, my, yeah, my no bad, worries. My bad. All good. Okay. Um, you know, I, I learned my lesson, I think, at Kiowa 
I was I was talking to my friends after every round and I said he's going to shoot 80 tomorrow right I said that after Thursday after Friday <laughs> I mean he's he's going to shoot 80 tomorrow right after Saturday okay he's he's I mean he's playing with Kepka right I mean he's, he's got no chance tomorrow right and then after Kepka made that birdie on one to build next bogey and kept his leading you're like oh my god yeah. this could be really ugly he goes. um he's an all-time great and all-time greats are able to you know for one week whether it's he, he timed it you know he, he's got these incredible set of hands and there were no signs that he was going to play well at Kiowa he had no top 20s, I think, in like 10 months. Um, and then he goes and does that. I, I have no idea. I mean, he's he's won a Torrey Pines three times. The most recent of those, it should be noted, was in 2001, a full 20 <laughs> years ago. So, you know, it wouldn't seem to be a course for him. He has not had any success. In, I mean, we know he has, I think, six runner-ups in U.S. Opens, but none since 2013. Um, it typically doesn't set up for him because there's a lot of rough. He does not typically hit the ball very straight. Um so on paper, it's not a good fit. And that's why you see his odds. I think it's like 55 to one, despite being the most recent major champion. But mm-hmm. I learned my lesson at Kiwa. I, I just, I have a hard time writing him off because I wrote him off like 17 different times that week. And I was made to bite my tongue every single time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, where are you on Phil? You've got a couple of weeks to warm up on it. Well, I'm the same way as Dan. I was looking at the odds earlier today. The, the two things that caught me was no one was better than 10 to one. And that's rare for me at a major because usually whether it's Kepka or in recent years, McElroy or in some years, Spieth, someone was seven to one, eight to one. No mm. golfer is better than 10 to one. I was wondering, Dan, what you thought about that. And then secondly, I was scanning down and I thought it was an error. I was like, how could they have left off the PGA champion Mickelson? And then you, ha- you have to continue to scroll down to him being at 55 to one. And I'm thinking... I don't know. There's 150 roughly golfers teeing it up. I think that's roughly the number. Yeah, um, 156, I think. One fi- right, right, 156, the class number. That suggests you think that, you know, his, his average probability is kind of no better than, I don't know, th- there's probably 40 or 50 amateurs that you could probably eliminate, which would mean he's the middle in the pack of the 100 competitive golfers. That seems wrong to me. I think he's more competitive than that. Again, I, I just, I wish I had more for you. I, I agree, right? Like it, I, with, I know what the odds makers are thinking, like lightning doesn't strike twice, um, but maybe it does. I don't know. Well, let's say um, the following. Let's, let's talk about the following about variance, but now variance at the performance of a tournament level. If yeah. you had to pick one golfer that would end up, let's say, with a top five finish, I'm not saying necessarily win, but a strong finish, who is that golfer? Like who has gotten their game to such a level that even on their average day at a U.S. Open, they're going to finish top five? I think if you had asked me a year ago, I would have said Dustin Johnson. I'm not sure. Sh- or John Rahm. I'm not sure about that right now. But I, obviously no one cares what I think. What do you think? I would say I would say John Rahm. I would say John Rahm right now. Um, obviously, his last start was rather dramatic in nature. He's leading by <laughs> six. I mean, we think about that. He's leading by six through 54 holes at the Memorial. That's a tournament that basically all the stars play. He was a, a level above them. Um, and even if we, we, we take the Memorial out, he finished tied for eighth at the uh, PGA Championship. And then he had two kind of bad finishes before that. T5, T5, T9, T32, T5, T7, 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 T2. So he's a guy who's been really racking up top tens. And then he has a very, very good record at Torrey. Uh, it was where he won his first PGA Tour event. Um, he's had a bunch of top 10 finishes since. I think when you combine course history with uh, current form, Rom is the one that jumps off the page. But you're right. I mean, you're right. It's like, I'll take that, that 
that you said there's no one who's better than 10 to one. I'll take that a step further. Like who's the best golfer in the world right now? It's, I it's would not have really. To say, I, I would have to say, if you asked me, I, it, it would have to be either Rom, Justin Thomas, maybe you'd throw in there Kepka. Maybe you'd throw in there. I mean, it, one right. of those. And there's, there's, there's no answer. I mean, you say no. John Rom, he hasn't, he hasn't, won, he hasn't won since August. So, you know, Justin Thomas doesn't have a top ten in like his last seven starts. There's, no, there's no guy who's like the top dog in the game right now. There's an unbelievable parody, and you're right. I mean, there's 15 or 20 guys who you could make a case for this week. Let well, the thing you. is, but the thing is about golf. In some sports, you would say, "Oh, it's so much more interesting without the, the overwhelming favor." We don't have overwhelming favors in golf. It's not like the NBA, where as soon as Golden State's not what Golden State is anymore, it's kind of more interesting. In golf, it was always more interesting. You kind of lose focus on that going in because everyone talks about Brooks or Justin or whatever. But golf's always been one of these games where the 35th guy can win this thing. And the 55th guy does sometimes win this thing. That's just, and I think, and I think equipment and stuff yeah. like decade, but mostly equipment has really leveled the playing field. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, I think Tiger Woods probably was, was, got a raw deal with the equipment. It's just, it's just so good now that the difference between, I mean, back in the day, you have to, you, there were, you had to really flush it, right? There was a difference between guys who could really find the center of the club face and guys who couldn't. And now, there's just not that big of a difference. The, the technology is so good that these guys can swing as hard as they can. It's By just the not way, go that don't be surprised. I would, they should yeah. have an old equipment tournament where everybody hits blades from the 70s. Yeah, everybody these guys are these, their egos. Their egos are way too fragile for that. They would never, ever do that. I was just going to say, if you told me, this gets back to Cade's last point. I'm looking at the group that Rom is in. If you told me that the winner came from Mark Leishman, John Rom, or Patrick Reed, I'd say, why not? Why right, Leishman won. Leishman won this tournament last year, and and Reed won it or won at Torrey Pines last year, and Reed won earlier this year. Yeah, so, so Leishman wh- in the was Leishman on the board in round four of the Masters. Where was? Yeah, he, he was. He was. He, he was, was. kind of hanging around. I think he finished fifth, and then he, uh, him and his partner, is uh, yeah, the they won team that event. T- um, but he has a pretty bad record in U.S. Opens, like so, compared to the other majors. So. Dan, want to hear? You, you've got s- such great scoop on these guys. Give us a little bit on speed. Uh, so one, he it was a lot of fun to watch. Obviously, when he was blowing up, but being a, a, a UT kid, I've got an extra soft spot for him. Um, do you, what is the conventional wisdom now on where he is? Uh, is what's the conventional wisdom on whether he's damaged goods mentally? Um, is that a thing? Anyway, so wh- where are you in Spieth, and where do you think other people are in Spieth? Uh, I think he's not maybe not a hundred percent back, but probably in the nineties. I mean, I think we, when we think of Jordan Spieth, we think of those kind of wow moments, right? Like holding 50 footers or, or making bunker shots. But in his heyday, he was a premier iron player, maybe the best on tour in, in 2015 and 2016. And his iron play has been pretty elite um, basically all year. So I think that's hugely encouraging. You don't want to have to, it's great to make 30 footers, but you don't want to rely on that. And now that he's not relying on that anymore. And if those 30 footers are for par, as opposed to for birdie, then they're not going to do much. It's interesting when you, when you talk to him, he will tell you that he's, he's still got a long way to go. I don't know if that's like a mental trick he's trying to play with himself and, and trying to kind of temper expectations, but he'll tell you that he's nowhere near where he needs to be. Um, I don't love this fit for him, this course. He's, he's still a little bit – he's off the tee game. is probably the, the weakest part of his game. Um, and this is a course where you're just going to have to absolutely hit fairways, like even more so than last year. Last year at Wingfoot, the fairways were so narrow and so firm and so angly that no one hit them. It was the statistically, they were the hardest fairways to hit ever in any event since they'd ever. So 
when no one's hitting the fairways. And it's basically who's going to be closest to the hole when they're in the rough. This week, there are going to be guys who are hitting fairways. So I think it's, it's going to be absolutely vital uh, to be in the short grass this week. And I, I just don't think this course is perfect for speed, but I would not be surprised if he wins one or even you know two more events the rest of the year. He's given himself a bunch of chances this year. And it's, it's great to see because he is someone who resonates. We don't have that many people who resonate, and he's one of them. Did yeah. I read correctly, though, that this is, besides this, I know it's a par 71 course, I believe, but isn't it something like 7,600 yards? And so it, given that, which I think I'm maybe 7,641, I thought I saw. Yeah, it's in that like, range. It's in that range, yeah. So that's an extraordinarily long course. Doesn't this, like, I hate to say it, but doesn't this mean like the Brooks Kepkas and the Bryson DeChambeau and the Gary... Um, why can't I think of his name? Gary Woodland. Gary Woodland. Like these guys have like a three stroke edge against everybody else just before teeing off. Like if they all hit the same shots, but one guy's 140 from the hole and the other guy's 180 from the hole. If we're both in the rough, I'd rather be 140 than 180. Yeah. But what you mentioned, yeah, that's, that holds true at every single golf course ever. Length is an advantage always. And it always has been. We talked about it earlier. You have a high lofted club. It doesn't matter if the course is short. Okay, great. You have an, you know, if, if, if a guy on the short course has an eight iron instead of a six iron, but I, I have a wedge, I'm still going to be in the advantage even on the short course. So look, yeah, if a guy like Bryson or a guy like Brooks drives it well, they're going to have an advantage every single week. And that's why you see the vast majority of the top 10 players in the world hit it a mile. Um, so it's an advantage every week. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I do. I think length is a big advantage this week. It's why I had Brooks number one. It's why I'm picking him to win. Um, it, it does. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Beth Page a couple of years ago. That's really I was thinking into, the exact yeah, same thing, which re, which really turned into like a bomber fest. So I, I could see it playing out that way again. Dan, let's talk. We need to wrap up here, but I want to hear a little bit more from you on the analytics side. And Eric, I'm interested in your thought on this as well. We've 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 played this game with other sports. I don't think we've played it with golf before. Say you've got two rounds uh, into a tournament, so you know the cut, you know who's going in uh, play the weekend. Take a couple golfers who are equally they're, – they're at the same score at that point. If you could pick one stat and only one stat to predict which of those two golfers would do better over the weekend, which is going to do better by the end of the tournament. They're at the same score after two rounds, yeah. and you can only pick one stat. Yeah, I'll take the guy, I'll take the guy who's putting worse. Yeah. Yeah, because that's because that's it, it's yeah, Crazy. because it, there's there's so much variance in putting because it's a it's a binary outcome, right? It's either like for, for the short putts or anything inside 10 feet. It's like either make or miss. So the difference between make or miss is so massive that it, it, it doesn't the, the larger the sample size, you know, it kind of brings everyone together. So I'll take the guy who's putting worse because the regression to the mean is probably more likely to happen. So it's such else. a good answer. Hold on. That's just such a good answer. And it directly corresponds to the go to answer in basketball, which is you take the guys who shot worse from three point range, I think is the, is the answer is, is a good answer for basketball for the exact reason. You just expect more regression to the mean. And if they happen to be level, despite having underperformed this one random dominated category, you'd expect them to do better on other stuff. It's almost 100%. like there's a trick there. You're basically saying, I'm not going to go to what's most important. I'm going to go to what's least important. And they've done really badly on because exactly. that's going to load me up on all the stuff that is important. Well, right. Like my first instinct when you said that was like, oh, do I look at strokes gain approach? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't have to look at who's doing something better. I'm going to look at who's doing something worse. It's so good. Eric, what do you think? Well, I, I, I love Dan's answer. I was just going to joke and first say quickly, um, that means I'm going to bet on Joel Embiid in the next NBA game because no one could have done worse in the second half of that game last night. But um, 
I was going to almost give the opposite answer of Dan, but I love Dan's answer. He's almost changed my view because yeah. everybody that listens to Moneyball knows I'm a momentum guy. And so the question becomes, <laughs> is there enough momentum within four rounds? Because you're making an assumption, Dan, which may be true, Correct. that there's mean yes. reversion within a tournament. And I'm a person that says, no, someone can stay hot on a given statistic for four rounds. And it's a, fact, it's a... that's who's going to win. And by the way, this is wonderful. This is why we have the show Morton Moneyball, because every Everything you said is correct, and there's an unknown about when does mean reversion happen? What is the cycle? And I think it's longer than four rounds. You've made an assumption that suggests it might be shorter, and no. And this is a great statistical yeah. discussion. I like your answer. You've almost convinced me, but I'm going to take the person who's the hottest putter. No, it's, 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 well, it's it's interesting that you said that. I was just having this discussion with with one of my friends. I'm like, it's it's really incredible how real momentum is because I mean, I always think like, oh. One, one year we're going to be like, oh, that was funny when we thought that momentum was a real thing. And, but it, it is. It just is, especially with putting, especially with something that's so confidence-dependent like putting. Um, when you lose okay. your confidence on the greens, it's, it's brutal. This is, this is a topic for another conversation because there's a lot to dig into there. And, um, man, I can't help but bring some skepticism to it. But, 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 but fair this is enough. why I need Dan on my side. Because, Dan, I'm the, I've been fighting with these guys for three years about this, uh, for seven years, the, all three of them about this concept. We'll have you back, and you and I will take the momentum <laughs> side, and we'll let them okay. take the, the non-logical, wrong answer side. All right. All right listen, you, boys. Dan, thanks for cutting us some time. Major Golf Tournament Week. Appreciate it. Um, always fun to talk to you. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Always happy to do it. All right. Dan Rappaport. Golf Digest writer, long time, you know, full career of analytics. It's a short career yet, but he's quickly becoming the grizzled veteran. And that is another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week here. Thanks from the whole crew, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Brattle. This is Cade Massey. Big thanks to the boss man, Matty Dats, the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins. It wouldn't happen without Deion Simpkins. And thanks to you guys for listening. We'll be back again next week. Please join us then. And between now and then, enjoy your sports. Moneyball. You're going to be excellent in one sport. You got to go golf. You can play it for decades. That's a There's a you senior can play tour. It for, you can play it for There's 40. a tour for the people who aren't good at it anymore. Right. You can play for 45 years. Somebody else carries your equipment. Right. You're out in the sunshine. Yeah. If it rains, you get to go inside. I mean, what? is there a concern about concussions in golf? No. I was is there a concern about anything? No. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio.